Welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast, where we interview scientists, philosophers, and leading thinkers to discuss the nature of our reality and the impact it has on our daily lives. Hello and welcome to the podcast, The Cosmos in You. This is your host, Susanna Scully. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is a podcast where we research and talk with uh, all sorts of people about the nature of our reality and how it applies to our daily lives. So I'm excited to have you here. And quick housekeeping, would love to have you, if you haven't already, head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast as well as rate and review. Um, Those who have been listening have heard me like a broken record, but it really does make a difference in terms of being able to have other people see the podcast, hear the podcast, uh, join our community and and help to spread the word. So I, I appreciate if you're able to do that. Now, Thank you. And today we have such an incredibly fascinating guest. My friend and colleague, Jeff Riddle, told me about uh, an interview he heard with this doctor and researcher and wow, she does not disappoint. So today we have Dr. Diane Hennessy Powell, who is a Johns Hopkins trained neuropsychiatrist, speaker, researcher, and author with over 30 years of clinical experience in as both a psychotherapist as well as a psychopharmacologist. She also taught neuropsychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Powell is the author of the book ESP, The Enigma, as well as several other books. Um, her expertise on autism, dementia, trauma, and other neuropsychiatric conditions enables her to search for the root causes uh, to enhance our understanding and treatment. So in, in this episode, we discuss her background of being a child prodigy and what got her interested in this her current line of work, the research she's currently working on with Deepak Chopra to study autistic savants and their telepathic abilities. She goes over the three environments that cause us to be the most connected with others telepathically and really helps to break down modern science and helps to show us what it can tell us about the world we live in and what it cannot tell us about the world we live in. I One of my favorite quotes in here is uh, she says, let me find it. Oh, by looking at the hardware of human beings, we cannot understand the software. And I just love that. So the work she's doing is incredible. It is fascinating. And she really is able to connect the dots because she keeps her work more broad and she is so bright and so passionate. She's doing some really incredible things that I I know you guys are going to be fascinated by this. So I'll stop talking. And without further ado, let's jump in. Welcome, Dr. Diane Hennessy Powell. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, I'm look, really looking forward to this conversation because you have such a fascinating background and all the theories that you're working on now. So I'm excited to get into that. If you would, get started by telling our audience a bit more about your background. 
as a child, I was a math prodigy. I was able to do algebra when I was only seven years old. My my father was a mathematician, and I used to sit at his side and do scientific experiments. And so I, I was wow. really raised to be a scientist. His uh, he he was the head of the artificial heart program at Battelle Memorial Institute. When I went to college, I really fell in love with a, a new science, you know, neuroscience. It was very brand new. In fact, they didn't even have neuroscience as a major back then. So I uh, took courses in biophysics and courses in the physiology of the brain, comparing the brain among different animals. You know, what, what do we know anatomically, you know, it's, um, are the differences and how does that relate to function? And so these are the kinds of things that I've been interested in my entire life. And um, I worked in laboratories doing electron microscopy, uh, you know, doing recording of voltage potentials from uh, crayfish axons. You know, so I was one of these people who was involved in sort of the um, the cutting edge of neuroscience as an undergraduate and, and published paper in neurochemistry um, back then. And went on to medical school because I realized that the answers to the questions I wanted really would be better served by going into medicine and, and that I could also help a lot of people. So I applied to medical school and went to Johns Hopkins. And um, while there, I continued to do neuroscience research and, and work with some of the greatest minds in neuroscience. And and instead of staying on to Hopkins uh, for faculty, I, I joined the faculty at Harvard. And I was there in the context of being a um, one of the consulting psychiatrist who goes to the medical and the surgical and OB floors to see if there's, you know, if a patient has a psychiatric disorder and if um, there's something that we could treat. You know, sometimes we would get called to see somebody because they wanted to sign out against medical advice. And you technically cannot sign out of a hospital against medical advice unless you are considered to be sane. So mm-hmm. it's a common reason to call a, a psychiatrist as a consultant. And I was called in to see this woman who claimed that she was psychic, that she could see the future, that she could read people, and that she was seeing ghosts in the room because so many people had died, and that she wanted to leave because she knew the test results were going to come back normal. And the hospital was kind of freaking her out. And, um, and, and she was somebody that, I mean, the nurses at this point, I mean, they, you know, and, and most psychiatrists at this point would just have no question about, you know, that this woman, you know, is not all there, all there. Right. right. And, and she was, uh, this, uh, really commanding presence. She was half Native American and half African American. And, and I, and I remember, you know, looking at her and just saying, um, do you mind if we just talk a little bit about this? And her sitting down and looking at me and saying, You're, you've got this white light around you. I trust you. I will. And I'd never heard of, aura, of auras, you know. But, you know, once again, this is sort of this, you know, for me, this is just as a psychiatrist, I'm still looking at this patient and thinking that, you know, she's she's got some kind of mental illness. But what I wanted to do was instead of force her to stay in the hospital, what I really wanted to do was get her to agree to stay in the hospital because she had been admitted to see if she had had a heart attack. And um, back then it took at least 24 hours to get the results back from the blood labs to tell you whether or not that had occurred. So I was just for her own sake, I was trying to talk her into that. I didn't want to see her, you know, forcibly kept there. Mm-hmm. And especially, you know, so this woman who, you know, that we think might have just had a heart attack. And then she started to say to me things about me that there's just no way this woman could possibly have known. Wow. Such as? 
She said to me at that very week, uh, my my husband, at the, I was married at the time, and my husband was applying to, he was an MD, PhD who went to Hopkins with me, and he was applying for a position at UCSD in San Diego, but he was also applying for a similar position at Johns Hopkins and it, as a biochemistry bo- postdoc. And she says to me, your husband's a chemist. Mm, wow. <laughs> and then she said, and this week he's applying for jobs in two cities. Wow. And of course, at this time, there's no Google, there's no research, no. there's no, right? I mean, let's just be clear here. This is a very different time. Right. Yeah. And, even my, the nurses and people, nobody at work knew this about my husband, wow. you know, yeah. uh, you know, he, they didn't know this about him. I wasn't sharing this with them. I was in the psychiatry department, just, you know, visiting, you know, their floor, you right. know. And of course you wouldn't share it because it means you could leave and, you know, exactly. all the things. right, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I looked at this woman, I said, oh, really? Tell me more. Yeah. And she said, it's interesting because in your husband's heart of heart, he really wants to go to one city, but you'll end up in the other. And I knew because my uh, husband had, uh, he'd been born at Johns Hopkins. He was 13th generation Baltimorean. You know, wow. I knew, you know, that he wanted to go back to the Hopkins. He, he, he really, um, in his heart of hearts, because he really couldn't identify with the West Coast. To him, that was kind of la la land. <laughs> and so it was one of those things where, I knew that, but she she said, you're going to end up in the other city. So you can imagine, I just really wanted to know, okay. What, what, I said, well, what cities are you talking about? She said, name some and I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. And so what I did was I named several cities mm-hmm. and she picked them out. She mm-hmm. goes, and she goes, yep, you'll end up in San Diego. Wow. And we ended up in San Diego. Sure enough. And she, on top of that, she told me that I would only have one child and that would be a daughter, <laughs> which turned out to be true, you know, <laughs> despite the fact that I wanted to have more children. And she, every single thing she told me was either something that I knew at that moment was true or it was something that was yet to unfold. And as each of those events unfolded, I was just like, I've got to understand what's going on here. So that there, right there, was sort of the beginning of a quest. Mm-hmm. At that yes. moment for you, is that right? Yes, because if such a thing is possible, then it has huge ramifications for who we are as human beings. It has mm-hmm. huge, huge ramifications for our model in neuroscience. Yeah. So what happened? What I mean, obviously, it didn't unfold immediately, but tell us about the journey of what occurred next. Well, what what happened, I'd say the next step in the process for me happened when I was working with, I was in, in practice in San Diego, and I had some experiences there in which patients would know something that, you know, once again, it's like, how do they know this? Because I was working with people who were therapy patients because I, I became this trauma expert, and so I was seeing people for weekly psychotherapy, and mm-hmm. One of the things that has been described about telepathy in the research is that if there is an emotional connection or bond, if there's a trust there, mm-hmm. that then you then telepathy is more likely to happen. Mm-hmm. And so as a psychotherapist who's there working with patients, if anything is going to develop that kind of a trust or that kind of a bond besides you know being someone's parent, you know, it that's a perfect setting for that. And I was contemplating at the time 
you know, I was thinking about leaving San Diego, but I hadn't said anything to any of my patients. And the reason why was that I just, I wanted to carve out some time for me to write some articles and some books. You know, I, my practice was just so busy. And what happened was, is I was at this beach with my friends and for the first time ever, I spoke with them and, and we agreed that we would come visit Oregon just to see what it was like. And as we're walking from the beach, at this time I had a cell phone, we're walking from the beach, my cell phone rings in panic. And it's one of my patients who was on the spectrum, uh, autistic spectrum, who said, Dr. Powell, I just had a panic attack. You're going to move away from San Diego. And um, at that time, it was just a thought. And then wow. ended up within nine months moving to Oregon. Wow. <laughs> wow. So can these... These sparks, right, of insight or others showing to you this, you who is a, you know, daughter of a mathematician, a true scientist, keep seeing these strange things happening. Right. Well, what I did was, is because of the fact that I had trained in behavioral neurology and neuropsychiatry, I'm aware of a lot of very interesting syndromes that don't fit the model for understanding the brain. And so one of these is autistic savant syndrome. And that's one that a lot of people are familiar with through Rain Man in which you have people who have these disabilities for very simple tasks. You know, it could be something like, you know, simple addition or, you know, tying their shoes or, you know, all of the above. But savants are capable of things like generating prime numbers that are in multiple digits without knowing how to do primary math. And I know as a mathematician, there is no algorithm for generating prime numbers. And when Oliver Sacks investigated these two autistic twins back in the 60s, they were just spontaneously telling each other prime numbers back and forth. And it was a game that they played. And he wanted to test them and see, you know, what they were capable of doing. So he went and looked up some prime number tables and he came back with eight digit prime numbers. And he he threw one in just to sort of join the game. And they sort of looked at him with big surprise because they recognize it as a prime number, you know, mm -hmm. and they're just like, oh, he can play too. Wow. <laughs> and, no, it's off the chart, but. <laughs> and, and they started doing eight digit numbers and he tested them uh they exceeded the computing capacity of uh, at the time in the 60s. They they gave digits, 20-digit uh, numbers, and the computers could only generate up to 12, but he was able to confirm that accuracy. And so when you look at something like that and then how they describe the answers come to them, which is the same way that if you interview a professional psychic, it's the same way that a lot of them say the answers come to them, which is that they say it's either... They literally see the answer hanging in space, you know, mm -hmm. just like I see a picture or a book in front of me. Mm -hmm. They see it out there or they see it in their mind's eye, mm -hmm. which is where we, you know, those of us who have a good visual imagination see things. But it's it just pops in there. It's not something that they consciously derive. And so these kind of phenomena are ones in which I have, you know, taken them into consideration and in trying to model what we are capable of doing as humans. And so I, when the more I looked at the savant syndrome, the more I realized that it really is not that different from what people would label as psychic. When you have a child who can 
give you information that they were never exposed to before. I, I know this one little boy that I'm working with. He, at the age of two, could read and speak to some extent eight different languages, including what? Russian. Yes. What? <laughs> You're kidding. No, I'm not. And this is something that's been well documented in the literature for a long time that these children, um, occasionally, you know, they, they show up and they're very disabled in terms of their social skills or their ability to comprehend certain really basic things. Yet they are like little supercomputers or little encyclopedias. And you have to wonder, how do they do that? So what do you surmise out of all of this? Well, there's more. Yeah. Yeah. There's more what? There's more going on. There's more well, what? Yeah. Well, the other piece of information that's mm-hmm. really important to look at is that there have been cases of people. Um, one of them was published um, decades ago by someone whose last name was Lorber, and it was published in Science, a very you know, reputable journal of this man who had an IQ that tested at 130, which we know is is well above normal. And it turned out that when he died and they, and when they looked at his brain, that he was born with a brain that where the cortex was just a fraction, less than one three hundred of the depth of a normal cortex. So why is it that you had an autistic children whose brains are more disconnected? And as someone like this, you know, who, who is, you know, practically born without a cortex, you know, what is going on? You know, our model for thinking about how the brain processes information has placed too much of a significance on the wrong information. Mm, the wrong information being sort of material, physical parts of our brain. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I mean, by looking basically at the hardware and thinking you're going to understand the software. Mm. And is that, I don't know, obviously, to tell our audience about what is happening in autistic. Well, let me back up for a moment. So you have the autistic uh, spectrum, which we've all sort of heard that phrase. And autistic savant is on the far end of the spectrum. Is that right? Well, no, no, the, the spectrum isn't really defined. Uh, that's actually looking at the degree of what are called autistic symptoms. So the degree of social and language impairment. So whereas with savants, which would, because the reason why I became interested in autism as it relates to savants is that the majority of savants are either autistic or blind. Mm. And, and those are cues, you know, are clues to understanding what's going on here. You know, why is it that people whose brains have isolated areas where it's working more like an island unto itself? Mm-hmm. So Kim Peek, for example, he actually didn't have autism. He had hydrocephaly. And so he had this huge hole in the middle of his brain. And who is he? Sorry, I don't know who he is. Uh, he was the uh, savant that Rain Man was named. Oh, at. got it. Okay. And he was able to, he read over, he died in his late 50s, uh, but he was able to read over 12,000 books in his lifetime. And he could recite them forwards and backwards and uh, word for word. And he could actually read one book with each eye independently. His, <gasps> both of his hemispheres were operating separately. 
And that which reminds you a little bit of like an octopus in which the brain's really in their tentacles, you know, and their tentacles can each operate separately. So you know, there's a little bit of decentralization of intelligence that occurs in the autistic brain, which, you know, has huge ramifications. But if you have a model that thinks that memory has to do with the number and complexity of synaptic connections, and you're really looking at a brain that has fewer of those, yeah. and you think that they've got the most phenomenal memory of all, then you have to really question the paradigm. I mean, it's just, you know, sort of those things that make you go, hmm, you scratch your head. So how do people, I mean, how do those scientists or doctors reconcile the very thing you just said, that put their arms in the air or... They're not even looking there. One of the problems about science today is that most people are unlike me. Um, they're, they're so highly specialized, whereas I am somebody who purposely avoided becoming over-specialized because I wanted to find the big picture. And mm. I didn't want to get tied down the way that academia does. It, it yokes you down to once you've defined one little thing, then it wants you to continue to be studying that, you know, rather than going, but that's just one clue along the trail. <laughs> yes. So when in looking at these savants, you know, the other thing I, I can, I'm, I'm trying to think of the name of a book that I read recently. It was something like, unlocking this super genius in your brain or something like that. And I'm forgetting it, but anyway, but it talked about when people get brain injuries and then, so for example, you know, hit their head and then all of a sudden they can play the piano, you know, like a genius or et cetera. Can you tell, do you know some about that or how does that fit into all of this? Oh, that's absolutely the, the phenomena that I'm talking okay. about. There's something yeah. called acquired savant syndrome. Okay. So they're, they're the people who have savant syndrome who are born blind and they usually become musical savants, you know, where they can, you know, just play something without, you know, hearing it more than once, you know, and without having had lessons on how to play. And they're, <laughs> and they've just got the most amazing ability to process music. And that's thought to be related to the fact that when you don't use the visual cortex for vision, mm -hmm. that is like, that is major, major prime real estate when it comes to doing any kind of computations. Because, you know, what we visually see is all a calculation by our brain. It's all a computation that's, a, you know, a simulation. Mm -hmm. That's And a lot of it's based on memory, you know, and, you know, of what we should see as opposed to actually, because if you think about it, that's a lot of bits of information to be having to process. If you're not drawing also upon memory of what your room looks like, you know, if every time your visual systems, every second's having to, you know, create a new, you know, processing of that information, that's not how it works. It, it sort of runs, just think about your blind spot, you know, how, you know, we don't see a hole in our visual field because the visual system creates, doesn't like to create a vacuum there. So it just does its best job of simulating what should be there. But if unfortunately something like a car is there, then, mm -hmm. you know, then you could have, you know, you could pull into the lane and get into an accident, you know. So our visual perception, what we think of is really just a simulation. And so what happens is, is that these people who are savants, their thoughts enter into that visual simulation. If you see what I'm saying. Yeah, They're hold on. Sorry, I'm going to stop for just a second to make sure that I understand. So, so what you're saying is that essentially for the brain to, for efficiency, the brain is trying to be efficient. And so when you look at something, it's pulling up a memory of what that is, so it doesn't have to cre keep creating a that's new image. Right. Is it's, that it's, right? That's right. It's taking, it's, it's looking for change. Yeah. It's scanning for change. Okay. 
And it is also using memory of what has been seen before to create the image. And that's why our vision, that's why magicians capitalize on this, you know, because they know that what we see, that, that they could be doing something off on the side and we're not going to see it, even though we think that we were looking in that field of mm-hmm. vision mm-hmm. because of the fact that we are still, we're manufacturing that perception, you know, because we're not giving it our attention because we're not expecting anything over there. Ah, and so our, gosh, so our attention, because our attention is not there, then there's no cue to our brain to scan for something different. That's right. That's right. And so what's happening with these people like these uh, savants is they are, um, so if you think of hallucinations, Mm -hmm. we don't think of a thought as a hallucination if if it, it occurs as an interior process, but there are people for whom their thoughts occur as exterior processes. In, in other words, instead of experiencing that thought in our inner simulation, mm-hmm. you know, that inner voice or that inner visual field, you know, that we don't quite know exactly where it is, but we know that, you know, when we imagine, some people say that they can practically play a movie back in their head. They can literally see it inside their head. And other people can't, you know, and, 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 but we know that there are these differences in how our brains are wired. So anyway, the point I'm getting at is that there are people who have these, that information occur to them as an interior process. And we tend to think of that more as thoughts. But when it occurs on an exterior process, we tend to think of that as a vision or a hallucination. Mm, got it. Sort of when you were saying that they see things sort of hanging as we see a book in front of us and they see that's it. That's right. I'm okay. Saying. Yeah. It's not, a vo- it's not something that they try to have happen. It's involuntary. It just occurs. It just happens for these people. That's what's so fascinating. And so it's, and but because the autistic savants are obsessed with information, you know, with 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 prime numbers, then they're able to access that information more readily. And so, one of the things that I've been interested in is, you know, what is it that they're picking up? We know that ninety seven percent of what's out there is invisible. You know, what is it they're picking up? What kind of information are they picking up? Are they picking up patterns? You know, is this purely pattern recognition? You know, and if so, why are their brains so superior at it? And I, and I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that rather than their brains being more connected, that you have their brains disconnected in certain areas and, and those areas are able to work together in a way that's more like a, a supercomputer. Okay. So I want to go back to a few of the things you just said to dive in deeper. When you said we know that 97% of what we see is invisible. What do you mean by that? I'm referring to the dark matter, dark energy. Ah, if so for our audience, yeah, tell what do you what does that mean? Well, it, when when physicists look at the amount of energy that's in the universe, you know, when they look at the zero point field, when you've reduced the temperature down to absolute zero, you have so much energy. That Richard Feynman, I believe he said that it's that a, a, like a cubic inch of it could boil all of the oceans in the world. I mean, that's a tremendous amount of energy. And yet it's invisible to us. We don't really measure it, you know, by the kinds of instrument, instrumentation that we typically think of. And the same thing is for matter. Um, there's a lot of matter that we know is out there. Because of the, you know, because of gravity and because of what we're seeing, you know, from, you know, the Hubble telescope and, you know, various other astrological or astronomical instruments. 
Mm-hmm. Got it. And so what you're saying about the savants is that, is it possible that they are seeing some of the 97% that we do not see? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe with their informational fields, you know, that they're mm-hmm. able to detect in some way, you know, that, that we're not able to detect. And, you know, that's, that's a lot of, you know, if you think about how um, interconnected everything is at the quantum level, mm-hmm. that if you just tug one, at one place we, from chaos theory, we know that that has an effect that can have an effect all the way across, you know, the world. Mm-hmm. Now, that, Are you talking about entangled? Well, I'm talking about chaos theory, which is in my book, The SP Enigma. I, you know, I, I try to explain uh, some of these concepts like chaos theory and um, entanglement and quantum physics for, for people who don't even have a science background, just so that they can understand that we live in a world, and we have now for over 100 years, in mm-hmm. which modern physics has told us that what we perceive and what we think are the laws, uh, you know, are, are basically approximations that came from Newton. They're good for describing things at this level of reality. But when you get down to the smallest level of reality or you get up to the scale up to the largest level of reality, you know, you, you start to see that the, the laws are very different. Mm. So I'd, I'd love for you to tell us a bit more about the research that you're working on now and how it ties into all of this. Well, after I put out this hypothesis that autistic savants would be the most likely to report telepathic abilities to the extent that would be needed for skeptics to believe that telepathy exists, because there are, let me back up here, um, there, there are a lot of studies that have been done by scientists that show a stronger effect suggesting that telepathy is real than there is for a lot of other things in science. And so the, the, the evidence is really there, but what the people who really find it impossible to believe in telepathy, what they say is that, you know, it just has to be extraordinary. And so when I thought, well, what would give us extraordinary evidence? And it was the autistic savants because of the fact that when they're really good at something, they don't mind, they don't get bored with doing it. And so you can have them do a repetitive task over and over again, and they don't get bored with it, especially if it has to do with numbers and letters. Um, so that's one advantage of working with kids who are autistic savants. The other is that their skills sound so similar to psychic abilities. And then on top of that, their brain activity when they're awake is a lot more like our brain activity when we're asleep hmm. in that, yes, in that um, when we're asleep, our right hemisphere is more active than our left hemisphere. And also our limbic system is more active than our cortex. And so our frontal lobes they go offline and that's the part of our brain that makes judgment about what's possible or isn't possible and thinks about consequences. And so that's one of the reasons why our dreams will allow us to do all kinds of things that we can't do in this other, you know, sort of waking reality. But we really live in these two different realities. And some people, and I suggest that these autistic savants are, are, are among them, the, the two worlds are not as separate. Hmm. So their world is very similar to what would be our dream state. 
It can be. Their waking state. Okay. It can Mm -hmm. be. It can be. I mean, there are these conditions like sleep paralysis in which people have a, it's a neurological disorder in which people, when they wake up, they're still paralyzed because we're paralyzed during dreaming sleep. They, they're in their bedroom and they're staring, you know, at their, um, their ceiling or whatever, Mm -hmm. and they can see all kinds of visual hallucinations. And so that's an example of, and if you look at their brain wave activity, you can see that they're really in a mixed state where they're having, they're experiencing a combination of some components of waking life and some components of dreaming life. And so when you look at the brains of some of these people who report these psychic experiences, you also see that there's this, that the two worlds are not as separate from one another. So a lot of how the work, the brain works is by a process of inhibition. And when you remove the inhibition, <laughs> then you start to actually see and experience things that you, you didn't otherwise. And would this be uh, similar to states of, for example, a meditation? Am I correct in saying that you, it shuts down your prefrontal cortex during meditation? Is that a state? When we, when we, when you meditate, um, it depends upon the form of meditation. Some people, when they meditate, they're hyper focused. And so they actually have a little bit of an increase in frontal lobe tech, mm. uh, activity. But in general, what happens is, is that you are decreasing the, um, activity in the, um, association con, cortex and uh, the parietal lobes and, and oftentimes that's the parietal lobes is where in our brain our sense of where our body is relative to space around us mm-hmm. that's that's the part of our brain that processes that so you actually have a decrease in activity there and people feel themselves merging with their environment around them and that's the sort of thing that also coming back to your waking state i mean i think about sometimes when i'm falling asleep. And if I'm holding my husband's hand while falling asleep, all of a sudden, you know, it's that whatever brainwave state, it feels like we're one, you know, it's all melded together. Is there, does that happen before you go to sleep in a certain brainwave state? Well, when we go to sleep, so what's believed to be the case is that psychic abilities are more associated with theta activity. That's a certain frequency. Mm -hmm. And so and it comes out of the hippocampus, actually. And that's part of this limbic system that becomes more active when we are, you know, relative to the cortex when, when we're in dreaming sleep. And so, so anyway, but to get back to your question about, so why is it that some people are telepathic? I believe that, so, so I, I started off with this idea that um, autistic savants, because of their brains being more like supercomputers, uh, because of the isolated bits and this and that, that they'd be more likely to be telepathic. And what I discovered was this, that they have the additional factor in many of them that they're, they're, they're rendered nonverbal. In other words, they aren't, they, they understand language, but they're not capable of expressing language. And so if there were ever a setup, a perfect setup for there was an innate uh, ability in people to be telepathic. The mother-child bond, when the child can't communicate using the usual ways, would be the perfect setup for that. Mm-hmm. And when I went to India to evaluate these children who knew things without being told that, that, that you know, who one child knew a lot of science, a lot of physics without having studied it. 
and so I wanted to, to, to find out, well, how did they, you know, is this real? I mean, you know, is it that they were on the computer? Do they just have, you know, amazing memories? You know, what is it? But the one thing that I found consistently among the parents was that they said that their kids were telepathic. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Because they can't really, they have difficulty communicating. And so there are people who've speculated that the Neanderthals might have, you know, communicated that way, that it might really be an earlier means of communication that language actually kind of took over because it's much more efficient. Just like now texting is taking over letter writing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) For better, for worse. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And so your the research that you're doing now, and I know you're doing it through your funding is being routed through the Chopra nonprofit foundation. Is that right? Right. So, so what's happened is, is that um, Deepak Chopra, um, has seen children like the children I'm describing, and he realizes that these children really are the ones who are the most likely to show non-local consciousness, which is what he's really interested in people mm-hmm. understanding. And he really knows that our model for consciousness um, has implications for um, world peace. I mean, it has impl- huge implications for, you know, how we proceed at this critical time in history. And so he and I are going to be meeting um, in less than two weeks. Um, I want him to observe my doing an experiment with a child who does not want to become known to the public. The family does not want that kind of recognition, but they know how profoundly important this is. And so he he's going to demonstrate what he can do in front of Deepak Chopra and another scientist, and we're going to film it. And this child, when I tested him last June, was amazing. He he when I showed up, he threw this huge temper tantrum. I mean, I didn't know what I was walking. You know, I I, I I come to the family's house and and he's he's like moving furniture, pushing furniture, throwing, flinging things off of the wow. table. Wow! And how old is he? He's fourteen. He was okay. fourteen. Wow! So he has some physical. He's able to. Yeah, it's large enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, indeed. And so, you know, you know, the mother and I were just like, you know, calmly just, you know, moving things out of his way, you know, and, you know, you just act like this is like, you know, just get out of your system. That's fine. You know, (laughs) you know, so we just, you know, and that went on for over a half an hour. And then he walked over to the uh, dining room table where his laptop was and he typed into his laptop why do you want to do research on telepathy? <laughs> and I told him, you know, what I basically just said to you about how I thought it had a lot of, you know, important implications for, you know, and then he said, well, why do you, he says, and why do you want to test me? And I said, because I, I've heard you're a very special boy. That's how your mother has described you to me. And I want to, you know, see what, you know, see what you can do. And then he typed, I'm ready for your experiments. Wow. And he cooperated amazingly. And he was so accurate. It was mind blowing. I did random numbers. I did, uh, you know, five digit random numbers. I did. What do you mean you did? You thought about them and he could tell you what they are. Uh, I, what I did was, is I, um, I went to Mm random.org and I, they have there, you can request that, you know, you just keep clicking on the button and you can request that it generate as you want it a random number of any, you know, between, you know, whatever and whatever. So mm-hmm. I asked for, 
ran the numbers that I knew would be in the four to five digit range. Mm-hmm. And I used 10 of those. And, and then I also just thought of words off the top of my head and put them into their list generator and, and presented those randomly. And so what I did was is I gave them to the mother one at a time and she would either look at it or think about it. It's easier to think about a, a, a word than it is a number. You, you know, a lot of people, they, they're, they get a little anxious, and so they need to really look at the number if it's five digits, you know, um, to make sure it's. But you can give them. A, that's the beauty of using both bird, words and numbers, and then also with words, because I also use foreign words, and I've also used fake words. With words, you've got one in, you know, one in twenty-six, you know, versus you know digits. You know, there's few, fewer digits. So statistically, when you're looking at words, it's um, even higher. Mm-hmm. And he made typos, but he would correct them without even being need to, you know, he just knew. And all of his typos were just because they have coordination problems, you know, where he'd hit the key right next to it. And then he'd go and he'd hit the delete key and then go back and, you know, hit the right key. And he, and he was able to do it. I mean, th- these kids, I've tested another child um, very similar to him, also under very controlled conditions. And they're able to do uh, like a five-digit number in, in, a, in about as long as it takes to type it. Wow. And, and is the time that they are correct is statistically significant. Oh, it's, it's, yes, it's, it's like over 95%. Over 95% of the time? Yes. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, you, it, it, wow. now all children are this accurate. Sure. Oh, I'm, I'm focusing on the ones who are the most accurate. Mm hmm. And it's amazing. You have to see it. That's why I'm bringing Deepak there. And um, his foundation, they will take funding to support my research because they see how important it is. And they have a nonprofit and I don't have a nonprofit. And so, um, and he wants to, we want to do a scientific paper. We're not just doing this just for, this is real science mm-hmm. and it's going to be uh Witnessed by another scientist from UCSD, and and we're we're going to submit it for scientific publication. Wow, that's incredible! So, for those who are listening, if you are interested in funding this research, where where would they go? They would contact the uh, Chopra Center, okay. uh, the Chopra Foundation. Mm-hmm. So you can look up their website, and then I guess you just donate in general to them, and then it gets well. No, I would. No. No, they should specify that they want to support Doctors Powell. Okay. So search on autistic savants so that they, they have money so that I can spend time with these children. See, part of the problem is, as I mentioned earlier about when I was first arrived and the child threw a temper tantrum, I mean, you, you, you can't, anybody who's spent time with these children knows that you can't just show up and, and say, you know, uh, perform for me now. Mm-hmm. You never know when they're having a bad day, you know, mm-hmm. and so, and they don't, and because I'm going for the children who are the most accurate, because that's really what science is saying. Show me, show me your best. Yeah, they don't live where I live. <laughs> right. So that's that's why I need the funding. Because I lose income as a doctor. I uh, I have to fly out there. I have to stay in a hotel. Yeah, <laughs> so it all adds up. It all adds up. All right. Well, we'll find the exact right link, and I'll put it. Uh, I'll put it on the page for our podcast, so everybody uh, so it makes it easy for everybody. So, where else can people find out more about you and your website and your work and your books? If you don't mind just telling our audience that, that would be great. Well, they can go to my website, which is Diane Hennessy, H E N N A C Y Powell, P O W E L L dot com. And I also blog 
at Naomi, um, N-N-I-U-M-E dot com, um, under Diane Powell. Um, you'll see some of my theories there, um, and I'm going to be publishing more theories there about, uh, I have a theory there for why it is that some people see auras and other people don't, uh, for example, that's put into real science. It's, it's, I am using, everything is evidence-based. Wow. What is that website again? Can you spell it again? It's N-I-U-M-E dot com. It's a blog website, mm-hmm. and that's where I'm blogging. It, it makes it easy for people to share on the Facebook. Uh, it makes it easy for me to see how many people are, you know, actually reading the blogs. And as I said, I'm going to be doing a lot that people can subscribe to my blogs there. It's free, and I'm going to be doing a lot more blogging about my theories because there's so much that I've been able to put together over the last couple of years. And and I'm really excited to share it. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. I have no doubt that the audience is enraptured with what you're working on, because I know I definitely am. There's so much food for thought, and I can't wait to dig in more and continue to follow your work. So thank you you very much for your time. and And I can't wait to see what is going to continue to come up. Thank you. All right. I hope you all enjoyed that episode as much as I did and would love to continue the conversation. So please feel free to reach out on our Facebook page, which is Susanna Scully, S-U-Z-A-N-N-A-H-S-C-U-L-L-Y. You can find us at the same Twitter handle, Susanna Scully, and also over at Instagram. And our website is SusannaScully.com. So keep it pretty simple there. Thank you all for listening in and look forward to chatting with you next time.